When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business. Greetings of the day, my fellow listeners, and welcome to another edition of Building Better Businesses. I am your host, Steve Eschbach. I am the president of Transworld Business Advisors here in Naperville, Illinois. I'm one of about eight Chicagoland offices of Transworld. We are business brokers. Uh, our primary mission is to assist business owners confidentially sell, and uh, we match them with qualified and uh, financially uh, vetted buyers. Uh, we also help uh, business owners uh, uh, expand via acquisition or also through the franchise model. And I'm delighted today to have another person who's an expert on enhancing value with businesses. It's Suzanne Mariga. She is a published author. She is a CPA. She's a certified tax coach. She's got a lot of C levels or C acronyms next to her name, like I do. Uh, rather than me reading your background, why don't you tell us uh, what your firm is, how you got to where you are, how you got to write the book, and then we'll follow up with that. Yeah, you know, I own a CPA firm for the past 15 years, um, Riga CPA, that's um, based here in Houston, Texas, but we service all around the country. And, um, you know, I started the firm really, you know, when I had my daughter, you know, she was, you know, I, I was working my corporate job, I was pregnant, and I had a job that I traveled a lot. Um, I know, Steve, you've got an accounting background, and you probably remember those those days where, you know, you, you have to maybe audit an entity and you have to travel to another country to even do that. And so I was doing a lot of that. And I realized that that my life was going to change. And so, you know, I, I said, you know, if I'm going to have a little girl, I want to spend time with her. And so I started my own business with that. And it was interesting because, you know, as I was starting my business, I was surprised that, you know, I, you know, how many companies were not making a profit? You know, they they would come in and, and they were so focused on reducing their taxes that they were really self-sabotaging themselves, you know, um, you know, buying things that they probably didn't really need, those cars and and things like that. I'm like, you know, gas is kind of expensive. I know that section 179 sounds really nice, but you know, it's really, really expensive. And it wasn't really until, you know, I found this book called Profit First by Mike Michalowicz that you know, I was probably guilty, just like many other business owners, you know, where we weren't prioritizing the end game. And it really was revolutionary because it allowed me to really focus on, you know, what's the why of our business? Why, why, why do we get up every day and do what we do? It allowed me to help my clients. And that's the reason why I wrote the book was, you know, so many entrepreneurs were 
were struggling with, at the end of the day, having nothing to show for all their hard work, having pretty much could have made more a lot of times just working a regular nine to five job and having more life balance. And it really allowed them to really be able to see the fruits of their labor, you know, by taking their profit first. And and I can definitely go more into that, Steve, if, if you like, with talking about that. And I know especially companies that are looking to sell, you know, it's not just about revenue, right? It's also about a multiple profit. So you want to have that balance between not just revenue, but profitability too, because at the end of the day, businesses yeah. want businesses that produce profits. Yeah, that's a, a critical issue today. And uh, if you just take a look at the past uh, six to nine, maybe 12 months, a lot has changed. Supply chain issues, you have inflation. We'll get into that in a moment. But you talked about your daughter. Is your daughter looking to follow in your footsteps just yet? Or is that too early? You know, I have never heard her say she wanted to be an accountant. Everything uh, else was not an accountant. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, let's go back to you when you were your daughter's age. So let's talk about you, your upbringing, uh, how much your family had an influence on where you are today. What were your interests back then? How did you suddenly get into accounting? Or maybe it was a desire what was the uh, what what prompted you to get to where you are today? Tell us a little bit about what you did in your grammar school, your high school, where you went to college, and how you got to be where you are today. I know that's a long and drawn out question, but let's see if we can do that in a few minutes. Sure. My parents were in college when they had me, and my dad was majoring in accounting. Um, he was, you know, he was wanting to get his master's degree, wanting to be a CPA. And so I always tell the joke that he was balancing balance sheets on one leg and balancing me on the other is what I tell everybody. So I got to see that long green paper, you know, and then like using those pencils and and making those tally marks and things like that. Um, he wasn't quite using the abacus back then, but, you know, it was it was pretty non-computerish. And when I was 14, you know, he, you know, I told him I wanted to get a job, you know, and I was thinking, you know, I was going to get a job at the local burger joint, maybe work at rallies, flip some burgers and get some fries and tell people if they want to add a shake to that, you know. And and he said, oh, no, you're going to work for me. You're going to be my bookkeeper. And so I remember like he would take me to the office, you know, um, and um, he would prop me where his secretary was. And, you know, and he would say, you know, you're this is how we do bookkeeping. This is how we do sales tax returns. And um, this is a tax return that I did. I want to see if you can do it and get the same answer. And so literally he was teaching me to be an accountant at the age of 14. Now I did quit at 16 to go work at the burger joint because, you know, that's where all my friends went. But I found myself always kind of going back to it. And I remember when I was in college, you know, we had to pick a major and, you know, it was I took this like regular, like basic accounting class. And it was it was really interesting because like. I mean, I hate to say it as steep. I felt like I didn't have to study to pass the exam, you know, and and because, you know, I already knew that. I already knew debits and credits. I already knew all that. And so, you know, I always joke, you know, they say it takes 10 years to become a master at something. And I was like, yeah, I was a master by the time I graduated from college when my, my peers were just starting out. So that's interesting. You had your father there kind of bring you to work and say, this is what I think you want to do. And it kind of kind of stuck on you, didn't it? Oh, yeah. And plus, he was getting a tax deduction, too, right? Because, you know, um, if you're a sole proprietorship, you know, you don't have to pay Social Security and Medicare on hiring your kids if they make less than a standard deduction. That's tax-free money. I don't even know how much I made during that time. I felt like a dollar an hour. So how about your mother? What did your mother do and what kind of influence did she have on where you are today? 
So my mom was um, primarily a stay-at-home mom. I mean, every now and then she would work for my dad, but working for spouses are always hard. But primarily she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, so she was just always there to be a listening ear. Yeah. And that's important too, because uh, you have dad who's accounting uh, focused and you have mom who's a little bit more relaxed and probably had a a bit of a more listening ear, if you will, but I'm sure both of them gave you the guidance that you had to get to where you are today. Definitely. I I think I was a a lucky girl. Good for you. Good for you. So now tell us, you had a corporate experience and then you um, started your own business. How did that transition go? And what was the reason behind leaving corporate and then getting into your own job? Was that driven by you? Was that driven by external forces like downsizing? How did that all come about? I was lucky. I always tell people I kind of got out of school during that that dot com boom. You know, I went to work for Anderson, actually in Chicago, thirty three West Monroe, so pretty close to where you were. I used to drive out to Naperville all the time because I had, you know, like a Meritech that was out there. <laughs> so, um, quite a few large companies, and um, I stayed with Anderson until, unfortunately, the folks in Houston kind of, you know, got in trouble with some things, and the firm dissolved. And you know, I, I went to industry for a while. Then I went back into public accounting with KPMG and um, became a manager when I left KPMG and really was more so just a change in life for me. It was, you know, just knowing that when I go all in, I go all in. And I had a job that had me traveling, you know, about 70% of the time. And, and I knew I couldn't do that with the life priorities that were changing. So it was primarily a, uh, not primarily, but it was a work-life balance that kind of made you change from corporate to to where you are today, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Steve, I was one of those ladies that went on maternity leave and never came back. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. So we have a number of topics here I want to talk about. And first, I want to talk about your book, Profit First for Minority Business Enterprises. So tell me about the book. What prompted the writing of the book? And is there much difference for minority businesses in terms of uh, Profit First than it is for general businesses? What, what, What do you see there? I think that the biggest difference is a lot of times the starting point. You know, I I got lucky, you know, that my my dad did go to college and I happened to be able to be there while he was there. And a lot of minority businesses don't have that. They don't have that. Sometimes they're first generation. I was first generation to go to college on my mom's side of the family because she did not finish. You know, when I was, you know, born, she decided to kind of step back and, and focus on that so that that first generation of knowledge isn't really there. And, you know, depending on their environment and where they came from, you know, there's a lot of potential mindset issues, too, that that are there. And so this book really focuses on kind of evening that playing field. We talk tax strategy at a whole different level. We talk mindset. We talk marketing. Um, It's still profit first. You know, it's still, you know, make sure you eat your veggies first and fund that profit account. Um, And then, you know, fund that tax account, fund that owner's pay account, and then everything else gets left over for operating expenses. So prioritizing, but it really focuses on on levering that playing field and giving that almost say an MBA before you even without going to school is is really what the book does in a very personal talk through it type of way. Yeah, sounds good. You know, it's funny. I was on a conference call before we had this call right now, and uh, we were talking about an allocation of a purchase price. So you have a business, and then you have uh, furniture, fixture, equipment, and then you have property. And how do you allocate that to maximize the tax benefit for both? And what's going to happen is an optimal balance between what the seller wants and what the buyer wants. But taxes do drive your decisions for sure. Um, There's a question here on your topics. It talks about 
what is the best type of business to start? Now, you know, we know that you're in accounting. We know I'm the business broker. That's where we are. But for someone who is thinking about starting a new business, what advice do you have for them as to which type of business to start? So I would say start with something you love, something that you're passionate about, something that you have a talent for. Those are the best businesses to start. You know, some businesses are going to require more capital intensive um, infusions if you get into the manufacturing realm, if you're going into R&D, um, that type of thing. But I would say start with something that you absolutely love. You know, I think the service-based businesses are probably the easiest ones to do um, because, you know, you're usually selling a talent that you have. Of course, eventually everyone has to scale and, and you have to learn to manage people, but those are typically the easiest ones to start. Uh, manufacturing, you know, you definitely have to put in a whole lot more thought, you know, like, you know, do I want to start as an S-Corp in a manufacturing company if I'm going to be doing a large amount of investments with, you know, equipment and things like that? Because, you know, I'm going to be limited by my basis, right? I'm not going to be able to take those losses that first year. And in a manufacturing company that has a lot of capital expenditure, you may have a loss that first year just because you're investing. So just kind of really, I would say, start with your passion, start with your heart, and then follow that. Yeah, that sounds good. Another question here is, how do you win uh, with government contracting? I don't think I've had that conversation much with my guests. And is there a different strategy when you're dealing with a government contractor versus another type of contractor? Tell us a little bit about that. Definitely. You know, government contracts are typically solicited through something called a request for proposal or RFP process. And it's interesting because it's, it's, you know, in some ways, I guess every business kind of does an RP, but not quite as formal. It's not documented. They're not requesting bettors. And one of the problems that happens with government contracts um, is people see millions of dollars. You know, I can get millions of dollars in doing security services or trash services or janitorial services, but they don't realize that the winner of this contract is the best value, which is like a combination of great quality, but low, low, low cost, right? And so, you know, this person's thinking, you know, it's the value. If, even if I get like 1% of a million dollars, you know, I'm good, you know? And what happens is they don't quite have the math down. And so they bid on these contracts. You know, they they look at what the person that got the last bid, what they bid for, right? They got the bid tabulation on that and they bid lower, right? And they're not putting into thought that there's inflation that happens. You, you know, some government contracts are going to, depending on the city, is going to require that you have to provide health insurance for all your employees, right? Because that's just one of the initiatives that they have in their city. You know, they're not thinking about how much does it really cost all in for me to provide this service? You know, you do have to get special insurance. And so, you know, one of the things that happens sometimes in government contracting is you might have a multi-million dollar contract, but you might run a million dollar loss if the numbers aren't right, right? Because again, it's the best quality at the lowest price. And so, you know, really, you know, where I see success that happens in government contracting, first of all, pricing, you know, make sure you get your pricing right. But you also want to, where I see people that really get the competitive edge is when it's not any such a commoditized type of business. So like if you're competing for janitorial contracts, you got a lot of competition, right? It's really where you could almost go sole source. It's so specialized, like engineering, but not just specific, not just general, but very specific engineering that you just have a niche that everybody knows you or that you have a certain type of software that nobody else can do, Right. And so really, that's where you win with those government contracts is really the sole sourcing area. 
Yeah. So you, you mentioned a concept there, which I we had this conversation yesterday at a Naperville Chamber event. We're talking about government tra- contracting, and typically the lowest bidder is the one that wins. And you brought up a concept that tends to get overlooked, and that's value. So there's a difference between value and lowest cost. Is there any comment you want to give in terms of value? Like if you are not the lowest bidder, but you perceive yourself to be the best value, how does someone go about explaining that to a government entity? So best value is it can be accomplished in numerous different ways. So one way is, you know, you're not my first rodeo, right? Um, You're not my first job that I'll be doing this for. I've done it for other governmental entities, right? Just like you or other large corporations, just like you. And when we do, you're not our first customer in this. We know what we're doing. Being able to recognize the brand is also important, right? Whether it's becoming a thought leader in that field where you're like constantly showing these these are the best ways to shine the floor, right? Or the best way to do this service. Really showing that you're a thought leader in there, showing the experience of your team. You know, not as this not our first rodeo, but you're getting an experienced team. They know what they're doing. They've done this. They've seen the problems. These are some things that you might encounter. And this is how we've dealt with it in the past. Um, Or these are the issues you talked about. These are the questions you asked. And this is how we dealt with it. And also having those recommendations, people that have given testimonials that, hey, yeah, you can call this person and they can talk about how you did. Um, So those are some of the ways that you're going to show best value. You know, it's interesting in your comments that you gave there, you demonstrated that active listening is critically important and relieving pain points of your customer. I guess, not I guess, I know that is part of the value driving uh, force behind why you would be the best choice. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. You you got to listen to what the pain is to make sure you address it. Absolutely. So we got a couple more questions here before our time is up. But um, one of the items you mentioned in your topics is top strategies for increasing business profits. Are there like top two or three that you would mention here beyond above and beyond anything else? Yeah, you know, I would say I like to start with the low hanging fruit, you know, because, you know, those easy ones, they go a long way for motivating you, right? First thing I like to do is look at those dues and subscriptions, those memberships, and you're like, you know, I remember during COVID, I walked into our office and there was like tons of magazines just piled on the on the coffee table. And I'm like, we haven't even had a visitor all year. Why do we have all these magazines coming in? You know, it doesn't make sense. Canceling those subscriptions. Those are the easiest things. You know, what meetings have I not attended? You know, if if I'm paying for a membership and I haven't been there in like the last six months, I'm probably too busy. Right? And, and psychologically, maybe subconsciously, I don't even see the value in that membership anymore. So I need to go ahead and cancel it. You know, the other thing I would say is start to really, especially in this economy that we're going into, think about how do I stay nimble? right now? How do I stay flexible? Meaning that if I got a big increase in sales and my business just doubles and quadruples, you know, I don't want to be locked into this long-term lease space or or even worse, what happens if the opposite happens? What if the, the economy tanks and I'm impacted, right? I don't want to be locked into this lease space. So really think about how do I stay nimble in this economy? How do I avoid fixed costs like a plague? Um, you know, I always say, if I'm going to be signing a year contract, I am going to be like, I'm going to take a couple of days to think about it versus signing right on the spot. So really avoiding, you know, those copier leases, those large fixed term contracts, those car car payments, you know, anything that would require you to not be nimble or would affect your flexibility or things that I would avoid. So uh, what resonated in my mind there, uh, a 10 year lease 
versus a three-year lease with two three-year options, the latter is better than the former. I would exactly. exactly. You have an exit if you need to. So that's interesting. Um, so here's something that I don't we think we talked much about. Let's talk about accounting processes and systems. So I'm kind of reading between the lines here. Are you saying a pencil and yellow legal pad is not the ideal way to keep books? Is that not anymore? Technology Uh, is so much better now. (laughs) But there's so many different types out there. And we all know that you have an accounting system that feeds what you're going to report to the IRS. So what accounting system? Are you talking about accounting software? Are you talking about how to record or what kind of judgments you make in terms of amortization, uh, cash versus accrual? What are you talking about there? You know, all of the above, primarily to different systems and from an electronic standpoint, a reporting standpoint. And, you know, I like to look at what are the things that are going to be important that I track because what gets tracked gets measured, gets accomplished, right? If I'm in construction, you know, that job costing is important. I want to see job profitability. Will the software allow me to track job profitability? Will it allow my people to clock in, clock out um, on the job site so that I can see when they're not chargeable, when they're just driving around, you know, plus it'll feed into payroll because I want to go back and then enter hours into a payroll system. So looking at congruency within your system and going, is this going to give me what I want? If I'm in retail, you know, is it going to track my inventory? LIFO, FIFO, um, am I going to be able to see how much inventory I have at the end of the month? Or at the end of the year, when I have to do my property taxes, you know, so really making sure that system before you invest is able to grow with you and track the things that are going to be important to you. Absolutely. So one last question that isn't in your topics here, but it's something that's come up and I've experienced it myself with the rapid uh, inflation, with the rapid fuel increases, and that's even come down a little bit. Uh, with all these changes, these post-pandemic, some of them could be called paradigm changes, you really have to stay on top of your financials. So where a monthly monitoring is a bi-weekly now, because what I'm finding is a lot of my selling clients are not quick enough to get price increases out there to kind of cover the cost of the inflationary items, supply issues. Do you have any recommendations regarding oversight, given what you're seeing today in today's economy? Absolutely. You know, one is keep the pulse on labor, you know, as you're interviewing and a lot of us have been implementing continuously hiring practices, right? Because, you know, we've gone through a shortage. Now we're starting to get more people in, but the wages, you know, what you paid six months ago, a year ago, maybe 25% higher, right? So, so keeping a pulse on what's happening because you're going to have to adjust your prices, especially if you're in a labor intensive environment, for example, you know, we recommend 3X to 4X on labor. So constantly watching what's happening in labor because, you know, you don't want to price the way that, you know, your labor was six months ago when it's going to be 25% higher, right? So you want to make sure that you're constantly having a a, a pulse on that. Um, I like your idea too, Steve, about monitoring those financial statements, you know, looking at not just the numbers, but on what we call common size perspective. So putting those financial statements on a percentage basis, like this is my expenses as a percent of my total revenue. So if I've got direct costs like direct labor, um, cost of goods sold, that type of thing. How is that percentage fluctuating with as a percent of revenue from month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year? Because that's how you're going to really find inflation. That's where you're going to see, okay, this is where I'm getting increase in costs in terms of, you know, being able to 
to buy the supplies that I need, right? Buy the inventory. That's going to show that from percentage standpoint, not just the dollars, because dollars, things get hidden in dollars, right? But percentage, that's going to really show me what's really going on with that. And so that's really important with that. And, you know, just, you know, just really just keeping a, a understanding of those numbers, watching what's happening in the environment. I like the Bureau of Labor and Statistics report that shows overall, not just how inflation is creeping up, but what categories is it creeping up? For example, if I'm in logistics and I'm a, and I have drivers, right, I need to look at, you know, how is fuel cost going up as a percent? Because I need to be looking at, you know, what my bill rate is going to be for, for those trips that I'm doing. And, you know, even though inflation is only going up 10%, maybe my fuel prices have gone up 25%. So my prices need to go up higher than the rate of inflation. So it really just depends on your industry, but um, definitely taking a look at, you know, your numbers, looking at what's going on in terms of like the primary source that you're using in order to run your business. And how is that price fluctuating? And how do you need to adjust your prices to match that? One last question, remote versus on-site. Do you have any thoughts about labor with respect to that? Is the world moving to more remote than on-site, or is that just a temporary thing that's going to subside once the pandemic is totally over? Do you have any thoughts about remote versus on-site workers? You know, it's interesting. I'm sorry. Construction is an issue. You can't do, you can't build a building remotely. I get that. But is there any, any comparison or any benefit to more remote versus more on-site today with traditional workers? I think it has its pros and cons. You know, I think a lot of people like the remote because it saves on fuel prices. You know, I think that it opens your talent source to all across the country and maybe even the world with remote. But not everybody's can function in a remote environment, even though they say, yes, I would love to be remote, but if they're doing laundry and the baby's crying in the background, <laughs> it might be hard. Um, you know, we're also seeing, you know, large corporations, you know, like Elon Musk, you know, you can do remote, but you have to be 40 hours in the office a week. You know, um, we're seeing that happen too. So I, th- and, and the realization is not everybody is made for remote. So I think that it's going to be based upon performance. A lot of it, you know, if those A players are able to be recruited and they have high performance caliber, I think they're definitely going to be considered for remote if that's something that's really important to them. And I think that some of us, you know, we're just going to be in office. We're just, you know, because that's where we perform best. And psychologically being around that, our peers is, is just, it's great for that emotional balance too. I get it. I get it. So, Suzanne, unfortunately, we're running out of time, so we're going to have to wrap this up. Is there anything in our Q&A that uh, we didn't cover that you want our audience to know about? I would say, you know, definitely I'm an accountant and I'm a profit first accountant. And I remember when I first started my business, you know, this, my client came to me, my first client of a shoebox. And he said, whatever you do, I don't want to pay taxes. And I remember like that first year, you know, he was happy. He got earned income credit. The second year he comes back and he gets earned income credit. The third year he says the same thing, but it's not funny anymore because that means he's gone three years and has nothing to show for his work. And I guess the message that I want to leave the audience with is, you know, a lot of accountants will tell you at the end of the year, you know, go buy a truck, you know, and get your expenses down. And at the end of the day, that's not winning. And so when you're implementing tax strategy or any type of strategy, really, but I'm going to focus on tax because I'm a tax accountant, but think about how do I grow my wealth while at the same time decreasing my taxes? So 
maybe one of the things that's important to you is longevity because, you know, right now if employees are leaving you within like two years, you know, they're taking that knowledge out the door with them. And so them staying longer is more important. And so maybe creating incentive, incentivizing them to stay longer. So maybe creating that 401k plan that say, hey, you know, if you're with me for six years, it's going to take you six years to fully vest. You're going to be able to fully vest in this 401k, even though I've been making contributions for you all along. Plus, I've been putting away my retirement. Now, if you leave after two years, like most average employees leave, you know, you're going to forfeit what you have invested in, and that's going to go back into the trust, which just happens to be my money at the end of the day, right? That I've gotten a tax deduction on. And so just creating, instead of focusing on increasing expenses to reduce taxes, think about how do I build my wealth while at the same time decreasing my taxes by creating artificial expenses. So that's one thing I would leave with. And then always take your profit first, you know, take your profit first, because at the end of the day, you have to be in line with your why in order to be proud of yourself when you're when you're ready to exit and leave your business. Absolutely. All right. So the last question, actually for you, it's two, because you got a book. I'm going to let you tell us where we can find more information about your book. And then after that, where can we find more information about you and your CPA firm? So I have a book. Um, it's called Profit First Minority Business Enterprises. But even if you're not a minority, it's a great book. I've had lots of people that are not minorities that have really enjoyed the book and written in, but you can find it at any bookstore, Barnes and Nobles. You can find it at your local bookstore. Um, you can find it on Amazon. Um, definitely take a look at it. Absolutely. And how about your firm's website? You got to give us that. How do we contact you? So the best way to contact me is we have a Profit First Masterclass and you can actually go on Facebook, type Profit First First masterclass with Suzanne Mariga. We actually hold a free masterclass just about every quarter. So that's probably the best way to t- contact me. And then our firm website is marigacpa.com. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Suzanne. I appreciate your insights. It's been a delight. Thanks so much. I would be interested. Let's say, how old is your daughter? She's 15. All right. So in 10 years, I want a, a report on where she is and she is, she's actually following your footsteps. Does she have any interest in accounting? She's never expressed interest in accounting. Maybe you keep it that way. All right. She'll be your uh, your your advisor outside of accounting. But anyway, <laughs> thanks so much. We appreciate your time. Listeners, thanks for joining us. You know, there's many other topics on the uh, podcast and the YouTube channel. Take advantage of that. Reach out to Suzanne if you have any questions for her. Thanks so much. Have a good day. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.